Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned to them, and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, once he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, That man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000? And if he's not able, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce everything he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I have a question for you, and you can be honest. As you were listening to that text that was just read to us this morning, did it create any type of internal reaction? Maybe it might have created for you this sense of like... um, I don't really get that, or maybe, wow, that sounds harsh, or perhaps um, that seems really difficult, or maybe it was a response of, I'm really glad that that's not addressed to us today. (laughs) But yet, what do you do with statements like this? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. When it comes to Jesus, can we pick and choose what we listen to and what we dismiss? What do we do with the words of Jesus? For those of you who are new to Grace, we are in a summer series titled Short Stories by Jesus. And we're looking at the parables of Jesus, the short stories that Jesus told. Why? Because Jesus told a lot of short stories. If you look at the, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see that, that almost a third of Jesus' recorded words in the Synoptic Gospels are in the form of parables. So if you really want to pay attention to Jesus and his teachings, you need to pay attention to the parables that he gave. So I'd like to invite us to pray now and ask Jesus to, to speak to us through his word today and that we would hear not my words only, but we would hear Jesus speaking to us. Because when Jesus speaks to us, you sense that there's something that he's trying to take you toward. He's trying to move you more fully into life. Jesus is never content to simply inform us. He wants to move us into the experience of the fullness of life that he has come to give. So maybe you can listen for that and look for that as we go into his word today. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we invite you now to be present to us.
I ask, Jesus, that you would make yourself real to, to each of us in the ways that you know are best for us. Whether it's through our disappointment, our heartache, through it's our fear, our doubt. Maybe it's through our um, sense of contentment with life or a sense of having arrived and being bored. Wherever we might be, Lord, you know us and you've made us for yourself. And so I ask that you would speak into this process. And I ask in your name and based on your authority that you would also remove the distractions that might be in this room, including the spiritual distractions that would want, that would seek to hinder this process of us receiving the word from you and having it be planted deeply within us so they could bear fruit of a hundredfold. So I ask that you would work today, Lord Jesus, for your glory's sake. Amen. So I invite you to look more closely with me at Luke 14. If you have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat if you don't have one. Or open up your app uh, if you have a Bible app. Luke 14, it's page 874 in the Bibles that um, that are here in the seats. And I want to take just a very basic approach to this text today, and I want to ask two, basically two questions. The first is, how might Jesus' first century largely Jewish audience have heard these words? And then secondly, how might we still hear these words today? How might we hear these words still today? So that's the approach I want to do. So to, to begin with, we want to begin with the question of how might Jesus' first century largely Jewish audience have heard these words? In order to understand that or to be, kind of figure that out, we need to pay attention to the context into which these stories are embedded. So if you're looking down at the text, in verse 25, it begins by saying, now great crowds accompanied, accompanied him. The NIV says traveled. Um, so what we have here is Jesus is on a journey. He's on a journey to Jerusalem, and that journey begins in chapter 9 and verse 51. So this is taking place while Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. And it talks about the crowds, great crowds accompanying him. He's attracting large crowds. And what's interesting to note is often in Luke's account, crowds we refer to pools of neutral people, okay? So the crowds in Luke's account are typically neutral people from which Jesus might attract disciples. And it's to that pool, that crowd of neutral people, that Jesus then speaks these words as he turns to them and he says to them what he then goes on to say. Notice also Luke's structure. In verses 26 and 27, you have two statements that are parallel to each other. And basically, the structure goes like this, and you see it behind me. It says, whoever does not X cannot be my disciple. Then you have a parallel statement in verse 33. It's parallel to 26 and 27, with again that structure of whoever does not X, meaning fill it in with whatever he says there, cannot be my disciple. And then embedded between that, those parallel statements are the two short stories that Jesus tells. Now, if you're not familiar with reading the text of Scripture, you have to realize, or something that's very important to realize, is that when the gospel writers write these things, they are being very purposeful in the way they're writing. They're not just going along and just saying, or having a piece of paper and going, you know, well, Jesus did this, and he did this, and he did this. They're very careful to compose something, and you can see that composition in the way that they structure the gospel. And you see that in what was just up there. So that's the structure that, that we see here, that there's these two short stories that are embedded between these statements, and those statements are going to influence the way that we also um, draw conclusions about these two short stories. These two short stories are simply about someone who wants to build a tower and about a king who goes to war. Both of them have questions. The first says, which of you? 
The second says, what king? And both of them expect negative answers. No builder, no warring king would undertake such an action without first determining if they have the capacity to fulfill their plan. In the first case, there are consequences in that there would be shame. They talk about the person being mocked. In the second, there would be the potential loss of life if a king goes out and suffers tremendous defeat. So there are consequences in both of these actions, and they expect negative answers in the story. So what's Jesus' point in telling these two stories? Well, just as no one would go out and and build or go to war without determining in advance whether they had the capacity to accomplish the task, it would be just as foolish, just as foolish, to be a disciple of Jesus without considering the impact on your life. Now I want to pause here and just take a second and and define what is meant by disciple. A disciple of Jesus is not someone who tries really hard to obey Jesus' commands and Jesus' teaching. That is not what primarily marks a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who's experienced an inner transformation by virtue of sharing in the life of Jesus that comes from placing your trust, transferring your trust from yourself and putting it into Jesus' hands. See, you can know if you're a disciple of Jesus, you can know that because you've experienced an inner transformation where you've placed your trust from yourself and you've transferred it to Jesus. That means that you're saying to Jesus, Jesus, you now call the shots in my life. I'm not the one who has all the answers. I'm not the one who calls the shots. I'm not the one who's number one in life. And when you experience that inner transformation, you also experience not only the life of Jesus, but you experience the presence of Jesus because he comes to be present with you through his indwelling spirit. So there's there's this assurance of his grace and his love. And so therefore, the things that Jesus asks you to do flow out of your life as a natural result. You still do the things that Jesus asks you to do, but it comes as a natural result of trusting him. You see, if he's the one who's given you life, then doesn't he know what's best? If he's the one who has life and life to the full, doesn't it make sense that if he tells you what to do, he has your best interests in mind? Does that make sense? So a disciple of Jesus is someone who's experienced inner transformation, not simply a person who's trying to read the Bible and do their best to obey Jesus, keep commands, keep his teachings. It's rather this inner transformation out of which this life of responding to Jesus flows. So back to the text. Through these two stories, I think that Jesus is saying that being his disciple is not a light matter. It is not a light matter. But notice that Jesus isn't trying to discourage people from being his disciples. So you can't read, I don't think it's fair to read the text that way. Because in verses 15 to 24 that preceded this this. This, um, this section, he extends a very open invitation. The parable that he tells there is very open in its invitation. Jesus is also not trying to gain as large a crowd as possible either. Which, as I was reflecting on that this week, it just caused me to wonder about the emphasis within the Christian church in Western culture where it seems to be that the, 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 the end game is to get giant crowds. 
I've wondered, what do we have in these crowds? Are they crowds? Are they consumers? Are they disciples of Jesus? Jesus is not out to get great crowds here either. But Jesus does want people to understand what's involved in advance. He wants people to understand what's involved in advance in order to be his disciple. It's like me saying to you, do you want to be a medical doctor? Well, here's what you have to do. You have to go to college. You have to probably get into a pre-med course track. And typically that involves a lot of math and science. You've got to get good grades. You've got to be involved in a lot of extracurricular activities. You've got to do well in your GRE. You have to take the MCAT. You have to do well. You have to distinguish yourself somehow from the rest of everyone else who's trying to get into medical school. So if you want to pursue that track, you've got to do that kind of stuff. And in a similar way, Jesus is saying, Are you, do you want to be my disciple? Here's what's involved. And you need to know what's involved in advance before you step into this. And I think that's why he's telling these stories. It's all part of Jesus informing the crowd. And what's interesting in this text is as he's telling them what's involved in advance, he, in this context, Jesus is saying to the crowds that being his disciple will require a shift in your primary allegiance. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Did that get your attention when Brian read that this morning? I mean, he landed on that word, hate, and paused. I thought that was pretty dramatic, Brian, very dramatic hate. <laughs> <laughs> but what, it, what, what is he saying there? Well, I don't think that as Jesus is using hate there in the context, hate is not an affective quality. Like I might say, I hate the smell of tuna fish, which is true. I hate the smell of tuna fish. We had some people show up to our house yesterday. They ate lunch together. They brought a packed lunch. They opened up. I said, is that tuna fish? They said, yeah. I said, that's going to appear in the sermon tomorrow. They said, how? I said, I'm going to explain about that hate in this text is not an affective quality, like that disgusting smell that's coming from there. (laughs) That's what happens when you land in my house. (laughs) Your lunch is open to critique. So Jesus is not saying here that you need to despise your family in order to be his disciple. But rather, as Joel Green says, hate is a disavowal of primary allegiance to one's kin. Hate is a disavowal of primary allegiance to one's kin. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you need to realize that following me relativizes your normal and highly valued loyalties to your family of origin and your inner circle of close friends. Keep your finger here and turn over to Mark chapter 10 where you see this again where Jesus, Mark picks up a a saying of Jesus. Mark's probably the earliest gospel written. Mark 10 verses 29 and 30. If you are not familiar with that, where it is, just listen and I'll read it to you. Jesus says in Mark 10, page 846, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. So what is Jesus saying here? 
He's saying that your, your blood family becomes relativized when you follow me. Your blood family, your family of origin, even your inner circle of friends becomes secondary to following me. If you want to know what it takes to follow me, Jesus is saying, you need to understand how I change your primary allegiances in life. It doesn't mean that you despise your, your nuclear family, your family of origin, but it means that they become secondary to your allegiance to Jesus. And Mark says, Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, that when you do that, you can also expect to have new family. Brothers, sisters, they're part of the family of God. So when you follow Jesus, and you really follow Jesus as his disciple, what you get is you get new family. And for some people who are here, you know what that is about, don't you? Some of you have gone through incredible things where you, you come out of a broken family or you know, you're, you've been abandoned by a parent or you haven't spoken to a parent in your entire life because of what they've done to your family. You've gone through a divorce. You've gone through some kind of earth-shattering, life-changing experience and you have felt what it's like to be alone, to feel like you are alone in the world. And then to come into the family of God and to feel embraced, to feel loved, to feel known, to feel that someone has your back, that someone really deeply cares and will walk with you in life, that's really rare in this world. And yet that's what you get in the family of God. That's what you get when you follow Jesus. You get this family. Some of us who've been around it for a long time just take it for granted, but the more I get to know people that, are, that have never followed Jesus and are just beginning to, to test this out, and they're testing it out in here, in this community. They are saying what a warm, incredibly hospitable, loving group of people you are, we are. And it stands out in the world today. Following Jesus gives you that, that family and it relativizes your, your loyalties. In a similar way, Jesus says that being his disciple will require a shift in your identity. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing the cross is a metaphor for discipleship. Think about it. If you're condemned to crucifixion, if you're condemned to crucifixion, meaning you have a death sentence, you're not caught up in pursuit of status. You're not caught up in securing your future by stockpiling money and possessions. So to follow Jesus is to identify with him in his vision for what really matters in life, for what life is really about, so that it affects the way that you live. The final bookend statement to these stories is found in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, that might strike you as odd, but I don't think that Jesus is saying he won't let you. He's not saying I won't let you be my disciple. Kind of like kids on the playground where they do, you know, if you don't do what I say, you can't be my friend. I don't think Jesus is saying that. Rather, he's saying you can't succeed with being my disciple unless you see that it's the most important thing in life. You see, as long as there's something more important than that, Jesus is saying, you won't succeed at it. So this is about the controlling vision of life that shapes you, that shapes me. 
And how do we know what the controlling vision of our lives is? You ask the question, what's most important? And then you realize that we, that I, that you answer it with our actions, with how we spend our time and our money and our relational capital each day. So Jesus is saying that unless you see that the most important thing in the world is following me, relying on me, sharing in my life, living in the kingdom of God, unless you see that, that this is the place where real joy and blessing and life and grace and peace and contentment and satisfaction in life is found, you won't adjust your life accordingly. Unless you see that this is what life really is about, you won't adjust your life accordingly, Jesus is telling the crowd. He's saying, you won't be my disciple. So this leads to the second question, the final question. How might we hear these words today? How might we hear these words today? Well, given the stories and the bookend statements, uh, the, the meaning of the words, is Jesus saying that discipleship is not for everyone? I mean, you could read this and possibly walk away with that kind of conclusion that Jesus is saying that discipleship is not for everyone. In other words, is this a two-tier system? Meaning that there's the full disciple and there's the good person who enters the kingdom of God. Well, here's my response. I think it's very clear that not all will choose to be disciples of Jesus, right? I mean, that was true in Jesus' day. That's been true since... Since the first century, when Jesus showed up and walked on this planet. And it's still true today. Not all will choose to be Jesus' disciple. But there's no basis to argue that discipleship is not possible for all. Discipleship is possible for all. But here's my sense. Here's my take on it. I've spent 30 plus years in the church. Uh, spent my whole life largely around Christianity, and so I, I've had the opportunity to see some things. And I've, I've seen some things that have been what I perceive to be a problem in the Christian church and the Western culture. And what I see is this, that the problem that has emerged within Christianity, American Christianity or Christianity in the Western culture, is that the Christian church in Western culture has implicitly or explicitly established two levels of Christianity. There's Christianity for the really committed, we call those disciples, and there's Christianity for those too busy being engaged with other pursuits of life. And yet when you read the New Testament, and you can read it for yourself, the term disciple occurs 269 times the term Christian occurs three times. It occurs three times and was first used of disciples in a setting where they could no longer be labeled as a sect of the Jews. That's Acts 11.26. In other words, the New Testament is a book about disciples written by disciples of Jesus for disciples of Jesus. Now, it's true that we literally cannot follow Jesus around if that's what it means to be a disciple, but I'm not suggesting that's what it is. It's not simply following Jesus around as a physical being like the first disciples did. But the inner orientation can be the same. 
The inner orientation could be the same. Dallas Willard describes it as involving desire and decision, and I like that. The inner orientation of a disciple involves desire and decision. Listen to what he says. He says, in the heart of a disciple, there is a desire and there is decision or settled intent. Having come to some understanding of what discipleship means and thus having counted up the costs, the disciples of Christ desires above all else to be like him. Thus, it is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher, Matthew 10, 25. And moreover, after he has been fully trained, he will be like his teacher, Luke 6, 40. Then he goes on to say, given this desire, there is yet a decision to be made, the decision to devote oneself to becoming like Christ. The disciple is one who is intent upon becoming Christ-like. And then he says, there is no mystery about desiring and intending to be like someone. That is a very common thing. And if we intend to be like Jesus, that will be obvious to every thoughtful person around us as well as to ourselves. Of course, attitudes that define the disciple cannot be realized today by leaving family and business to accompany Jesus on his travels about the countryside. But discipleship can be made concrete by loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us, walking the second mile with an oppressor, in general, living out the gracious inward transformations of faith, hope, and love. Such acts carried out by the disciplined person with manifest grace, peace, and joy make discipleship no less tangible and shocking today than were those desertions of long ago. And, of course, he's referring to the first disciples who followed him. So how a disciple of Jesus lives flows from who the disciple of Jesus is. And after spending time with this and reflecting on this, and I've been reflecting on this for probably at least two years, prompted by some events that we had in 2011, 2012, which I began to ask, what, what was it that I had perhaps overlooked in what I was doing in terms of my leadership and realizing that I had failed to make disciples? I had failed to make that really the underpinning of, of what it means to be the people of God. And after now having much more clarity about this and having my, I think my eyes opened by Jesus and the Word of God, I, I sense that we're being, involved, we're being invited into the greatest opportunity any human being could have in the world. And that is to be partnering with God in his work in the world. It's called the kingdom of God. And Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God had arrived in him, and he was inviting us to participate in it, inviting us to participate in his work in the world. The greatest experience you could have in life. And but, but for that to be something that we experience, we need to value. We need to value his kingdom. We need to value Jesus above everything else. And that's what I have been realizing in my own life, that Jesus has to become the most important person to me. And his kingdom has to become the most important thing to me. Not because I'm a pastor, but because that is the most important thing. And so what happens when you have that vision and it begins to transform, it begins to reshape your desires. So it's first vision, and then it reshapes your desires so that it affects your intentions, your, your decisions, your actions. So it's vision, then it's desires, and then it's decisions. And it's in that order. Your actions will never change unless your vision first is changed. You have to see the worthiness of Jesus 
and the worthiness of his kingdom and the beauty and the compelling nature of what he's doing in the world. And that begins to reshape your desires and you desire to be part of it. And then it results in your actions. And I can tell you that what Jesus is inviting us into in that is his grace and his life overflowing from our lives into the lives of others. It's been so exciting, and I wish I had time to tell you stories of how we're, I'm seeing this, we're seeing this in our family, in just very natural ways, just showing up and being present for Jesus to work and watching him work in ways that we had never tried. We didn't say we are now going to be, you know, trying to be a disciple of Jesus right now. But Jesus just allows his life to flow through us as we make him the priority and his kingdom the priority. And that's possible for us. That's possible for us simply by trusting Jesus, making him the most important thing in our life. Thanks be to God.